Amen. Last week, uh, we began a study within a study. So we're studying the book of Romans, but chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans are a study within a study. It is a, it's a letter that's written to the church in Rome, but this part of the letter is specifically about Israel. Romans chapter 9, how many remember last week's sermon? We talked about the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. If you were not here, uh, Calvinism and Arminianism, the the simplest and best way to cover it, without uh, I would suggest that you listen to the podcast, which will be up in a short while, because I have people saying, when is it going to be up? Uh, so it will be up in a short while. But we dove into the dis- differences in this. As Arminians, which is what we are, we believe that Christ died for all, and that the gift of salvation is, ex- is available for those who freely choose to accept it. For those who freely choose to accept it. Now, uh, there was a uh, very interesting thing that I was listening to this last week that talked about we believe in what's called total depravity. Uh, Calvinists believe in this as well as we do, except with us there's a little bit of a difference in that we believe that we are not capable. We are not capable within ourselves of attaining righteousness. We are not capable within ourselves of being saved. It's only through Christ. Amen. It's only by grace through faith, right? We both believe, Calvinists, Arminians, we both believe that we are not capable of doing that. The difference is, Arminians believe that God has basically, how many ever heard of the God-shaped hole? That within everybody there is a God-shaped hole. That we have a yearning to know God. That God has placed within us a yearning to know Him. But we freely choose and freely accept Christ. Calvinists, on the other hand, believe that God has elected some or predestined some, has chosen them out to be saved, to be righteous, and the rest are unfortunately not chosen and not the elect and not predestined and will face eternity in hell. Now, that is not what we believe as Arminians. We believe that we have free choice, that Christ died for all, It's called unlimited atonement. Calvinists believe in what's called limited atonement and that Christ only died for some. Now, getting into all of that, Romans chapter 9, in case you didn't hear it, again, it's on podcast, is a favorite of those who lean towards Calvinism because it seemingly gives credibility to their interpretation of the concepts of predestination, election, and the like. What's known as limited atonement. So we dove into the differences, and if you missed it, it's a good one. It's good, it's just good teaching. Amen? You were here last week, amen? I don't want to say it was really great just on my own, right, Gary? That would be uh, not not very good. So while Romans chapter 9 is a favorite of Calvinists, we can't just stop at the end of chapter 9. It's chapter 9, 10, and 11. So if we're going to read it in context... We have to read those three chapters. They're specifically written to Israel. They're written with Israel in mind. And as you will see, they provide some objections to the Calvinist ideas that we discussed last week. Chapter 9 ended with a look at where Israel was in their pursuit of righteousness. So in Romans, New Testament, here we are, 20 years into ministry. Paul's writing this letter to the Romans. 
saying this is where Israel is in their pursuit of righteousness. Paul told us that Israel pursued the law for righteousness. Old Testament Jewish Israel pursued the law for righteousness, right? But they missed out. It's not by the law we are made righteous, but rather grace through faith. Amen. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, for a long time, Old Testament, Israel was pursuing righteousness through the law, right? They were commanded and they obeyed God. Not all the time, but some of the time. They obeyed his commandments and lived by his statutes. But rather than the spirit following the spirit of the law, they followed the rule of law. They couldn't fathom this idea that we are saved through the work of Christ. They couldn't fathom this idea that He came to fulfill the law that they followed. They could not get their head wrapped around. This idea tripped them up. In fact, at the end of chapter 9, it's what the Bible calls a stumbling block for them. It tripped them up. We then go into chapter 10 with this knowledge and we're reminded again of Paul's great love for his countrymen. How many remember last week, chapter 9, we talked about how Paul said, that he would give up his own salvation if it meant Israel was saved. Paul said, I I would rather be accursed if it means Israel is saved. He says this in Romans 10, verses 1 and 3. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Here we see three things. I want to go over these three things that we see just in these verses. One is his heart's desire. His heart's desire. Paul loved Israel. Paul was Jewish. He was a part of the nation of Israel. These were his countrymen. These were, this was his family. I talked about my grandmother last, last week and how one of my uncles, my, my grandmother had three children. If you weren't here last week, I'll just do a quick, quick recap. My grandmother had three children. Two of those children were serving the Lord. One of those children is my uncle and he was not serving the Lord. He's, uh, to this day, he, as far as we know, he hasn't served the Lord. In fact, he dove into sin. He didn't just trip into sin. He dove into sin and decided to live a very sinful lifestyle. I know that my grandmother, until her dying day, wanted him to be saved, prayed for his salvation, prayed with others that he would come back to Christ, that he would, that he would come back to the family, that he, he had taken off, he had left, he took off to Hawaii somewhere. We have no idea. At this point, my dad said he's about six years older than him. And so he's about 74, 75, or 76 years old, because I can't remember how old my dad is exactly. So uh, it's close to 70, I know that. But uh, I do know that he was my uncle. His name was Uncle Richard, and we just we never heard from him again. We have no idea where he is or if he's even living to this day. I know that my grandmother, that if she could... If she could, I'd be willing to, I'd be willing to wager that she would give up her salvation if it meant her child was saved. Have you ever known a parent that sees a child in pain? A parent that would, how many parents would trade places with your child in pain? 
I mean, they're in extreme pain. You would, you would trade places just so that they wouldn't have to feel that pain anymore. Sometimes pain is necessary, but I'm talking about the unnecessary pain, right? Paul was saying he'd give up his own salvation if it meant Israel would be saved. That's, that's the love that he had for them. The second thing we see is this, that they had a great zeal for God. They had zeal for God. It's not as if they were against God. It's not as if they were against God. Paul understands their problem more than most. More than most people, Paul understands because he was a part of their system. Paul was a part of their system. When he was called Saul, he was trained up and he followed the law. Right? How many know the history of Paul a little bit? He was first named Saul. He was trained up as a Jewish leader. He followed the law. He was a, a leader of the Jews. He persecuted and killed Christians. In the name of Israel. He persecuted and killed Christians that were going against the the law. That they were going against the faith of the law. He had a zeal for God, but did not have true knowledge of God. He had a zeal for God, but didn't have true knowledge of God. In fact, he could not be convinced of it until he experiences Christ on the road to Damascus. He experiences Christ on the road, and it was then he saw and understood that Christ was the Messiah. It changes his life. It changes his name. He goes from being Saul to being Paul, who we know as the Apostle. How many here have ever had a real zeal for something, but didn't have a lot of knowledge about it? Anybody? Bob, raise his hand. How many here had zeal for something but didn't have a lot of knowledge? You're excited about an idea or a principle, but you don't have all the facts. Anybody? Come on, we can have a little bit of fun with this. How many ever watched the show? There's a great show, it's on TV. How many ever watched it? It's called First Time Flippers. Nobody ever watched this show? How many have DIY Network? (laughs) Yeah? It's called First Time Flippers. Let me give you, if you've never watched the show, let me give you an idea. It consists of people who have never flipped a house before. They never flipped a house before, but they, they, they thought, okay, I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to fix it up, I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to make a lot of money. Because they've seen other people do that on other TV shows, right? So they buy a house, they fix it up, they, okay. So they get excited about the idea of flipping the house without having a knowledge of what really goes into flipping a house. How many have ever flipped a house? How many have ever built uh, built something? How many ever got a great zeal for building something or doing something, got really excited about it, and then about halfway through you said, oh, I can't do this anymore. And so you throw it down. I uh, Two years ago, maybe some of you will remember this. My wife, my wife is smiling because she probably knows. Two years ago, I got so excited. I watched a YouTube video. No, no, it's okay. I got so excited about something called paragliding. Doug remembers. Doug's laughing right now. I got so excited. If you don't know what paragliding is, it's this. Uh, it is a parachute, and then you strap a motor to your back, and it has a prop. No, no, it's okay. This is it's, and and you have so you run. You run and you pull the parachute and, and you're supposed to glide up. And then it showed these videos of these people going over the rivers and through the lakes. And 
I mean, they're touching their toes to the river and then flying up. And, and I thought, man, how cool would it be on sweet corn days to, to fly through the crowd? And, and I thought, oh boy, I just got so excited about it. I had great zeal for it, but I had very little knowledge of it. I watched all the videos I could. I became obsessed. I watched all the videos I could. I got this idea that I could do this and not die. (laughs) That's the idea. That's right, Jackson. I lacked knowledge. Here's the knowledge that I lacked. First, I lacked the cost. The cost was thousands of dollars. Second, I lacked the training of which you need to pay for and cost thousands of dollars. Third, I, I didn't know too much about weather conditions. Updrafts and downdrafts and, and what do they call them? Uh, how many have ever gone paragliding or parasailing? Thermals. Yeah, thermals. There you go. Uh, I didn't know anything about that. I watched videos of crashes and I thought, well, I would never do that. <laughs> Which is what I'm sure they all thought before they, they crashed, right? Some people are this way with religion. Come on. How many ever know somebody that had great zeal for religion, but they, had, they didn't have a lot of knowledge, right? They had just enough knowledge to be dangerous. How many know some people like that? I remember my first semester of, uh, from college. My first semester at home, I got home from college, and, and boy, I was, I, I knew stuff now. Right? I had learned some stuff. I knew stuff. And I got home, and I remember talking with my brother, and I just said something really stupid. I mean, it, yeah, it happens, but I, I, I just, I really put my foot in my mouth. And, and I made a comment about another preacher and, and why I wouldn't watch him and all this stuff. And, and I, basically, I did it to show what I knew. And then you keep learning. And you learn there's a lot you don't know. And you keep learning. And you learn there's even more you don't know. You can have a great zeal for something, but not have the knowledge of it. Israel was ignorant of God's righteousness, and because of that, they promoted their own righteousness. You can see this in, in how many have ever known people that have religious traditions that have nothing to do with the Bible? How many, uh, there was somebody I was talking to, I don't remember who it was. It was about mowing your lawn on a Sunday. How many ever mowed their lawn on a Sunday? You bunch of sinners. <laughs> no. <laughs> Somebody said about mowing their... I grew up in, in super religious uh, Calvin country, USA. It's West Michigan. It's the headquarters of the Christian Reformed Church. Super, super religious. On Sundays, you didn't do nothing. How many know what I'm talking about? On Sundays, you sat there. You watched golf with your parents. Hey, I like golf now, but my kids don't want to sit there and watch golf with me. You sit there, it was religious traditions. People say, no, no, you can't do this on a Sunday. You can't do that on a Sunday. That's the Sabbath. And so I, being the smart child that I was, would say, Eli just laughed. Thank you. (laughs) Being the smart person that I was, went and said, well, isn't the Sabbath on a Saturday? Mind your own business. Be quiet. That's what they would say. Mind your own business. Be quiet. 
How many know there are some people who are ignorant of God's righteousness and so they promote their own righteousness? This is what Israel did. And then it says this in Romans 10, verse 4. It says this. Go to the next slide. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, all that language seems a little confusing, but we're going to clear it up for you. First is this, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Paul makes a clear statement to Israel here. The law will not save you. It will not make you righteous. Second we see is that Moses wrote about righteousness through the law. Moses wrote about righteousness, which was through the law. But righteousness by faith is different. The third thing we see is this. Righteousness by faith isn't us trying to get Christ by going up to heaven or Christ by going down into the abyss. We don't have to use extreme measures to get to Christ. Amen? We don't have to, this is who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. Righteousness of faith doesn't say that. Romans 10, 8 and 9 says it this way. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Somebody say amen. If you believe, the simplicity of this is astounding. The simplicity of this is astounding. For thousands of years, righteousness was dependent upon rules and regulations that nobody was capable of meeting. For thousands of years, righteousness was dependent upon those things. Paul speaks clear truth that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, you will be saved. That's it. There's no extreme measures or levels of righteousness we have to achieve. There's simply confession and belief. Now, as simple as it seems, there are some incredibly deep implications here. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, We believe everything which the Lord Jesus has taught, but we must go a step further and trust Him. It is not even enough to believe in Him as being the Son of God and the Anointed of the Lord, but we must believe on Him. The faith that saves is not believing certain truths, nor even believing that Jesus is a Savior, but it is resting on Him, depending on Him, lying with all your weight on Christ as the foundation of your hope. Believe that He can save you. Believe that He will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with Him in unquestioning confidence. Depend upon Him without fear as to your present and eternal salvation. This is the faith that saves your soul. Romans 10, verses 10-13 through says this, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. 
Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the heart of the gospel that we believe this morning. Paul makes a reference here to the Jew and the Greek. He says, you think of yourselves as distinct. You think of yourselves as separate or as different, but now there is no distinction. It's the same Lord over all. I like what this commentary says. This is a funny comment. It says, Amen. No wonder the Calvinists never go on to read Romans 10. There is nothing here about secret decrees or the elect being zapped with faith. Instead, we see that it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Amen. Now, remember, we talked about Calvinism, Arminianism last week, but it is an in-house debate. That debate is an in-house debate. Our differences don't mean that they are unsaved or that we can't share what we have in common. Amen? It's interesting, though, to bring up a core of their belief system. One of the cores of their beliefs is what's called irresistible grace. How many know what irresistible grace is? Somebody say irresistible grace. How many have ever been called irresistible Doreen? No? All right. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. What does that mean? It's the belief that God has elected or predestined somebody to be saved. That if God has elected them to be saved, they are unable to resist the calling of the Holy Spirit and will be saved no matter what. That if God has elected them, that's, this is what irresistible grace is. That if God has elected or predestined them to be saved, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's done, what's said. If God has elected them, then He chooses them. The Holy Spirit will call on them, and they cannot resist, no matter what, their will. Now, we believe different. We believe that we have free will. Some believe that we don't. I was talking to a Calvinist friend of mine, and he is a friend, and I asked this simple question. And here it is. If all those who are elected to be saved have no choice but to be saved, then why send out missionaries? Why preach the gospel? Why evangelize? It's a simple question. If all those who are elected to be saved will be saved no matter what, then why are we commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Now, (laughs) I talked to actually more than a few uh, pastors about this question who are Calvinists by nature, or by choice, really. (laughs) Uh, There was a a funny uh, Calvinist pastor who preached at an Assemblies of God conference, and he said... uh, He went to the conference and he stood up and he said, I'm so thankful that God predestined me to be here. It was funny. He thought it was funny too. They didn't think it was too funny. Uh, I talked to a couple different pastors, Calvinist pastors. Uh, Calvinists would be Reformed, most Baptists, uh, Presbyterian, things like that. And so I talked to a a couple of different pastors and I asked them this simple question. I mean, truly, if we have no choice in the matter, then why share our faith? Now, to be fair, not all Calvinists hold fast to every Calvinist principle. Not all of them hold fast to that. But the overall agreement was this. 
Because God commands us to. God commands us to go out and preach, and so we do. I like what John MacArthur, he said this. He's a Calvinist, by the way. He said when he was asked about these issues, he said, uh, I don't know. It's not my problem. He said, give me a break. I'm not God. He said, I don't know. It's not my problem. I, I mean, give me a break. But we can see, and it was probably one of the most balanced things I've ever heard him teach as far as that's concerned. He said, give me a break. I'm not God. But we can see clearly in Scripture God's sovereignty as well as man's responsibility. We can see clearly in Scripture God's sovereignty as well as man's responsibility. To be honest, if you think about it too hard, it can all become a bit confusing. I was talking with a pastor and he said, I said, well, why would you send out missionaries? And he said, because the missionaries need to be there in order to preach the gospel to them so that they may realize that they're elect. I said, so then it's the free will of the missionaries? And he said, you're confusing me. (laughs) And so it can all be a bit confusing, but nonetheless, Paul tells us what our responsibility is. Paul tells us our responsibility in the next verses. Uh, Romans 10, 14 and 15 says this. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Amen? How beautiful. Our responsibility is to preach Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, and the call to live in righteousness. That's our responsibility. The Bible tells us that to do so is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. Now, I don't want to brag about my feet. They are horrible. (laughs) The Bible says different. How beautiful are the feet. That was a lame joke, but that's all right. Our responsibility is to preach Christ. Amen. His resurrection, the call to live. The Bible also tells us what to do. That Here's the thing. Not everybody is going to listen. How many know that truth? Not everybody is going to respond to you preaching Christ. Not everybody's going to respond to you sharing your faith. Not everybody's going to respond with, with, oh boy, let me just pray with you right now. Right? How many, how many ever had that happen? There's times where that happens. There's times where you, you're sharing your faith with somebody and they say, boy, I just, I'd never heard of this before. Let me, please let me know the savior you're talking about. That would be amazing. For the most part, my experience has been, you're talking to them about your faith and, and all of a sudden you see an eye roll. Right? Some of y'all are rolling your eyes right now. What's going on? Mert, sometimes you see an eye roll. Sometimes you see, okay, yeah, I've heard this before. Right? Just because we preach the gospel, but not all those respond to the gospel. Paul tells us this about Israel in verse 16. It says this, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? I mean, 
God, hasn't Israel heard the gospel? Are you preaching the gospel with your life and with your words? Could you say to God, God, my neighbors, my friends, my loved ones, have they not heard? Lord, who has believed our report? This is what, this is what he's saying here. And God says this, yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. Now, Paul here is being a bit facetious in saying this, but because at that point, he hadn't gone to the ends of the earth. They've gone to essentially what they'd known. He was still going to do a missionary trip to Spain, but we, we say it this way. Paul's being a little facetious, but the truth is basically this. We preach the truth and they don't respond. What happens when you preach the truth and they don't respond? God had given Israel every opportunity to respond to the gospel. Every opportunity, but they still refuse. In fact, it says this, verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. This is, these, are, these are prophetic. This is what happens, and this is what's said in the Old Testament to, to uh, strengthen the new. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. We talked a little bit about this last week. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Ouch. All day long. It's interesting here that God refers to Israel as a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, they've had prophets and teachers. They've been led by God and by the law. They've had every opportunity God says, I stretched out my hands to you all day long, but still you refuse. Does this mean that Israel is lost? Now this is getting into not what has has happened, but what will happen. Amen? Does this mean that Israel is lost? Does, Does the rejection of Christ mean that God has given up on them? You will find this out next week. Amen? Next week, we finish the study within a study with chapter 11. And I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be good stuff. Let's stand this morning. Lord, I thank you for those who are here this morning. Lord, they had the ability to hear the word. Lord, that you would put it in their hearts, that it would grow, that it would thrive within them. Lord, I pray that we would preach the gospel to every creature. Lord, that we would preach with our lives and with our words. Lord, I thank you for the testimony of Alan. Lord, I thank you that you just, you provided. You provided a job for him, for his family. Lord, I thank you how you provide in our lives, how you answer our prayers, how you move on our behalf. Lord, I pray over each person that's here this morning that you would bless them. Lord, that you would keep them. Lord, that you would cause your face to shine down upon them. And God, that you would give them rest. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. 
Any further?